as I prepared uh, for man our time today, uh, really I was struck by something earlier this week and then even this morning, uh, just kind of in regards to that. So uh, I preached the book of James before uh, when I was a student pastor. Uh, I uh, led uh, the students that, uh, man, were a part of our student ministry through uh, this letter. And one thing I learned this week is that, man, God gives more grace because my theology for this text was not correct. Uh, I read it and I was like, no, nope, that's not what it says. I took a whole lot of liberty. Uh, but praise God for his grace and mercy in the midst of that. But the other thing, and man, really, it struck me this morning uh, because uh, as we stood and we we're singing and worshiping, uh, uh, one thing that I loved as a student pastor, uh, man, is the kids that we had, they sang really, really loud. Uh, they didn't care. And man, uh, it was just, I would tell them all the time, man, I love the way y'all sing. And this morning, uh, I got to experience that because the whole line next to me was just kids. Uh, and man, they, they just belted out. And I was like, man, just to see kids worship. But then also, uh, man, I, I just kind of stopped singing and just to listen to y'all worship. Uh, I mean, it's a grace and blessing to my soul, uh, to hear that and experience that today. And so thank you, uh, for that. Uh, but with that, let's open to James 5, where today uh, we're going to start uh, the last chapter of this letter, which, uh, again, is a letter of practical wisdom that was written to a group of Christians who had been dispersed uh, throughout the known world. And, and as they were dispersed out because of persecution uh, and maybe a variety of other things, uh, man, they find themselves struggling in the midst of a variety of circumstances and temptations to continue living out their faith in obedience to the kingdom of God rather than to their own desires, right? So that's why James is writing this letter. He's saying, hey, in the midst of circumstance, in the midst of these temptations to want to escape and, and run from what's going on in this current season in your life, man, don't be about the kingdom of your own desires. You need to be about God's kingdom, you see, this is a letter of building wisdom that really, it, it roots one's life into the, into really one of two kingdoms. As you read through it, you're met constantly with this reality. Are you uh, gonna ch- choose the kingdom of yourself, which, uh, is you be about you and yours? And the expression, as James has kind of laid it out, and we've kind of looked at over and over again, is selfishness and pride, right? We saw at the beginning of chapter four, he's like, hey, what causes all these fights and quarrels? He says, you may point to a variety of other things, but really what causes it is your own selfishness and your own pride. And so you have the kingdom of self, but also James, again, all the time, he's saying, hey, there's a different kingdom. There's a better kingdom. And it's the kingdom of Christ. And in the kingdom of Christ, you die to self and the desires of the flesh. And the expression of that is what? Selflessness and humility. So you have these two uh, different kingdoms, two opposing kingdoms. One is about selfishness and pride, and the other is about selflessness and humility. And that's what James is calling us to. He's calling us to God's kingdom. It's this call uh, that, that we see all the time in this letter, that wisdom is not found in selfishness and pride, but in giving, the, giving up of self, or the giving up on self, and humbly submitting to the will, plans, and care of Christ as king. Man, I don't know if you know this or not, but man, you and I make really crummy kings and queens, do we not? Like, we think we do a really good job, right? 
Like we think that our kingdom is put together and that, man, our rule is just and it's, uh, man, uh, not focused on us. And if, man, people would just do what we say, things would go well in our kingdom. But what we realize over and over again in life is that when we try to rule our own kingdoms, because we are crummy kings and queens, man, it fails us each and every time. And yet we always tend to run back to it, do we not? But James 4, verse 6, God gives more grace. You see, kingdom living is this realization and this hope and the truth that while we make crummy kings and queens, Jesus is a perfect king. And living in his kingdom is a life of submission and active obedience. For as we see in James 2, faith without works is what? It's dead. So we are to live in submission and obedience to the will of Of God, a life of humble, open-handed dependence upon Jesus rather on me. True freedom is learning to live open-handed while also living with active and intentional obedience to the word of God. If you read the book of James, actually what you see is a lot of what James talks about in his wisdom is actually things his older brother Jesus said. And he's like, hey, no, what he said was true. And what does it look like for us to be a people that have open hands and say, God, not my will, your will. That live in submission to his will, but also in obedience to his word. You see, it's something that's said all the time, uh, man, around uh, believers in Christ is we we use this phrase, uh, man, I'm just going to let go and what? And just let God, right? You see, but the thing about that is, man, that's. True, if you're really willing to let go, right? And let God be God and rule over every aspect of your life. Usually what we say in that is, man, in this circumstance and in this situation, I'm going to let go and let God. But all that other stuff, God doesn't need to touch it because it's not messed up, right? I can control that part of the kingdom. You see, it is a fallacy to let go and let God while trying to live in control of one's life or live out obedience, disobedience to the word of God. Really what that is, is that's just laziness to the word. But dependence, gospel dependence, leads to freedom. It leads to a totally different life. It leads to living a life of active obedience. You see, the good news transform your heart, transforms your heart, but your transformed heart, and I think we need to pick up on this when truly transformed, guess what it does? It leads to a change in lordship. It leads to a change in how you view your time, your gifts, your home, your work, your marriage, your singleness, your parenting, your relationships. Man, we've seen, and this is all stuff we've seen in James, right? It leads to how you change what, and, and think about what you say and how you say it. It leads to how you view the rich and the poor, how you see your time. We saw last week how you see some temptation and how you see suffering. You see the gospel and what James is after and what he's talking to us about over and over again is like, hey, the gospel changes all of life. Active faith is not just active on Sunday mornings. Active faith is active each and every moment of your life. Therefore, it is true in verse 17, when, it, when, when verse 17, if you could go read it, I'm not going to read it, but what it says is that, uh, is that it is sin when you know what's good and you don't do it. 
If dependence and humble submission to God is all of life, it is sin to know what you need to do and to not do it. You see, Christ and His ruling authority calls us to live differently. And in turn, it is from His good authority. Uh, man, if you walk in a different manner, you are walking in disobedience as your own authority. And really what that produces, it produces sin. And that sin really comes in two ways. What James is talking about in verse 17 when he says, hey, when you know something is right and you don't do it, really that takes place in two ways. First is the sins of commission. Now what the sin of commission is, is doing what God has said not to do, right? So we know what that is. Like we know that God's word says don't lie. So we walk in the sin of commission when we do what? When we lie. We know we shouldn't lie and yet we lie, right? So you have the sin of commission and then on the other side of it, you have the sins of omission. Now, what that is, is not doing what God has said to do. What that would be is when God says, hey, you need to depend on me for each and everything. You say, no, I'm going to depend on me for each and everything. So you have the sin of commission and the sin of omission. And guess what? We're guilty of both. But the good news for us, and I want you to hear this, even before we jump into James 5, uh, is, is this. Jesus provides for both. You see, Jesus came and did everything that God said not to do. Like, he, he didn't do it. Like, he lived a perfect life. But not only that, those things that God said to do to live that way, man, he did that as well. And for us today, in light of what Jesus has done, we also know that the Spirit empowers us to live differently. And so in light of all that we've seen thus far in our time in James, we, we've also seen this call of commission and omission in, in a two different ways, particularly first, he says, don't show favoritism, right? Don't walk in the sin of partiality. But we've also seen the same line of obedience in calling us not to omit caring for those in need. And you see, it's going to be this call this building of practical wisdom and how it actively works itself out in our lives that James is going to focus on at the beginning of chapter 5. And what we're going to get in, in verse 1 is the harshest language that he's used and probably the harshest language he uses in all of this letter. So let's read verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. That's it, right? Like, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. You see, something that we've seen throughout this letter is that, is that James pulls no punches when it comes to talking to these dispersed Christians about how they're to live their lives in light of the gospel. And in the midst of suffering, you see, James is a letter that brings comfort, but it also presses what it means to walk obediently to God's word and kingdom living no matter what. We've, we've talked about that over and over again. But one thing that he hasn't touched on really is the shameful acts of those who are taking advantage of and oppressing these believers, particularly the rich. I mean, I think that... that, that in lie like James waiting five, what we see is five chapters all the way to the end of this letter to address that. And I think that's something that we need to hear today. 
You see, James has spent a large majority of his time talking about all these other things. And now he's addressing, he's like, hey, I understand. He talked about it in chapter 1 a little bit. I understand that you're going through various trials, that you're being taken advantage of. He says, but, you know, let's look at you and your heart. Well, we'll get to that other stuff, right? Well, we'll talk about the oppressor, but right now let's focus on you. And he spends all this time talking about that until James 5, verse 1. You see, while James is concerned about the oppression being placed upon those to whom he is writing. Man, I believe that James is more concerned with the hearts and the struggles with sin of the Christians than he is with the oppression. And I believe that's good for us to hear because, man, I believe that by and large, because of who we are and where we live and the context we find ourselves in, man, I think more often than not, whenever we're faced with things like this, we make it more about all the oppression happening to us rather than dealing with the sin in our own lives. Man, we love to point to the oppressor instead of dealing with the heart, right? If I can just point it over there, I don't have to deal with what's going on with me. Uh, or I can excuse what I'm doing because the oppressor is taking advantage of me. But James doesn't do that. He says, no, let's look. Even in the midst of this, let's look at the heart. You see, what we believe, I believe, we're honest. Is it, it, we, we believe this. If oppression leaves, I would be fine. Just think about the circumstances of your life and ways that you feel oppressed and burdened and, and struggling right now. And what you would say is, if that would just leave, I would be fine. Well, you might be better, but Jesus doesn't want us just to be better. He wants to change the reality of our hearts. You see, the reality is this, is you would still have the same sin struggles that need to be dealt with. It doesn't go deep enough. But what I believe James believes is dealing with your own sin leads to lives of holiness no matter whether opposition is apparent or not. You see, when we believe this lie, I heard a pastor in the Middle East say it like this. Uh, on at, it, it was a video from the If Gathering. Uh, he, he says that, man... He's specifically talking about the American church. He says, man, oftentimes the American church has believed a satanic lullaby. That if those things would just go away, we would be okay. But they're not, we're not willing to deal with our sin. You see, man, if you believe simply that if just every bit of oppression in your life would just go away, that you would be just, man, I'd be perfectly fine. Or, hey, let's get just, just a bit more specific. If you believe that, man, laws and legislation, if that's all that needed to change, you would be okay. And we've been lulled to sleep. Now, I will say this, and with every part of me, and my prayer is that when the Supreme Court rules on what Texas submitted, man, that we would have victory because it saves lives. But what I also know is that, man, God wants to do an even deeper work on hearts. But we often miss that and say, well, if that's changed, that's enough. No, we, man, we want to see victory in every area. You see, even tomorrow, if every law changed to match the Bible, we would not have rest because we, first and foremost, are lawbreakers. 
And if you don't believe me, just read the Bible, right? But also what we can know from God's word is that the law alone can't go deep enough to deal with what's really broken in our hearts. You see, the law cannot fix our hearts, nor can it bring about the comfort and rest we need. Only Jesus can do that. Not only that, but it's a false gospel to believe that being a Christian means that you'll never suffer or be oppressed. That is a false gospel that many churches preach, and it's wrong. Jesus never says that. James, in this letter, he never says that. What does he say at the beginning of James? He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face what? Various trials. Jesus actually talks a lot about dying. He even says in this world you'll have trouble, but we are to what? Take heart because he overcomes the world. So I want you to see that because again, we, we can, we can take this and think that, that it's something that it's not and we can think it's, well, it's just about the oppressor. But again, while James is very concerned about those who are oppressing the poor, he also realizes there's something deeper going on. And it's here in verse one that he's speaking to unbelievers who are rich and he goes after their oppression. Now, I want to make a note to this really quickly, because I believe that while this was written to unbelievers who are oppressing the poor and vulnerable, man, we as believers who, guess what, by and large are probably richer than many of those James is writing to. We should take this as a sober warning and even allow it to reveal areas that we need to grow in generosity and where we might be placing our security and finances rather than in the gospel. You see, if you remember all the way back in James chapter 2, we get this call to keep from the sin of commission by not showing partiality towards the rich over the poor. Again, those James is writing to are being taken advantage of by the rich. And guess what? Uh, I mean, to them, the grass seems greener, does it not? And James warns against this. He says, hey, don't look like they're oppressing you. Don't show, like, don't think they're, uh, be partial to them over others. But again, the grass was always greener. And like, we get this. The temptation is to believe that being rich solves all your problems, right? Like, I remember from an early age, like we were, I was raised fairly poor. Like we, we had enough, but we, we didn't have a lot. And I was, man, if I could just have like, like to me, like $1,000. <laughs> like that was it, right? Like you made it, you know? And then you get older and you're like, okay. 10,000, you know, and then you get married and you're like, if we just have any money in our bank account. We are rich, right? Uh, but then like you look at it and you're like, there's this desire and this temptation as you look around and see what the world calls the Joneses, right? You're like, I got to keep up with them and I got to keep up with them and look what they've got and look at, look at where, you know, they stack up against me and we can run into that temptation and think, well, if we were just as rich as them, we'd be really, really happy. And that's a temptation. But man, I think the other side of that, while because it is a lie, guess what? Like it's a lie. It won't satisfy your heart. Man, more and more, the older I get, the more I realize that, man, the, I, I get so happy when I get to say it. Like, more money, more problems, right? Like, like <laughs> Biggie Smalls. Uh, like, you, you get this picture, like when I, like, just creates more issues. 
And that oftentimes the wealthy and the rich, and man, again, contextually, like we're all really rich. We become so unsatisfied, so frustrated. We're always trying to protect what we've got. Like we think someone's going to take advantage of us. And the list goes on and on. And we see that while it's a temptation, man, riches over and over again are destructive. But then if the temptation in reality was not enough, what we have to realize, which is something I believe James understands, is that guess what? Riches in and of themselves aren't evil, right? Like money in and of itself is not evil. It's just paper. Like if you look in your wallet, like it's, if you've got money in there, like it's just paper. Or it's just digital. You know, like I think... Like, it, I don't even know what money is anymore. Like it's just like this arbitrary thing because it's like... I started, I got cryptocurrency this last week because I don't know. I don't even know what it is. Like, I literally, like, you could ask me and I'm like, I don't know. I just did it, you know, because my brother-in-law was like, hey, try this. And I was like, yeah, sure. It seems good. Uh, and it's, it's going great, you know, but I have no idea what it is. And that can create some fear in me, but also I'm like, well, in my bank account, it's just digital. Like, who knows if that money's going to be in there tomorrow? Like, I don't know what, is it gold? Is it, who knows? But what I do know, what I believe Scripture says, is whatever it comes in, like it's not inherently evil. It's just paper. But the focus of James's harsh words are not due, again, because these people are wealthy. Wealth is not a sin. Money in and of itself is not sinful. It's what happens with money. It's the love of money. That is what? That's the root of all evil. It's putting money. Money is not the problem. Our sinful hearts are the problem because guess what? We make money more than it is. Just as the tongue reveals the heart, the wallet, or what you do with it, and how you view money reveals the motivations of your life and how you care about those around you. And what James does in this first verse with these harsh words is what he's doing. This is actually like he's using this as like, hey, man, come to God's grace. Repent. It's a call to those who worship money and seek to oppress others by it to repent. Or he says, man, get ready because judgment and misery is coming. He says, repent or get ready. But get ready for what? Well, in the next five verses, we get a picture of what judgment looks like for those oppressing the poor, for those who seek and love money more than they love the kingdom. And so let's look at it by reading verses two through six. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which kept you, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So what we get here in light of James's warning and call to repentance in verse 1 is you get four reasons judgment is coming for those who worship money and seek to oppress others because of it. 
who live out idolatry towards it. And so the first judgment is this. It is judgment due to the hoarding of their riches. Verses 2 and 3, James is saying, hey, you're hoarding all this stuff up. You're putting it in barns and silos. He says, but what's going to happen to it? He says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded. What James is saying here to those who are rich and, and who are hoarding their riches in barns and silos with no heart for generosity or care towards others in need, he says the result is that it will never last and it will only rot and be destroyed. You see, this goes along with what Jesus taught about riches when he says you're to store up treasures not on earth where moth and rust can destroy and thieves can break in and steal, but to store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. And so what does this mean? Like again, does it mean a bank account's wrong? <laughs> Does it mean savings accounts should be avoided and, and one should not think about investing for the future? No, that's not what James is saying here. We see in Scripture that it's smart to manage and save money well, right? But the issue again is not the money, but the heart. The issue again is not the oppressor, it's the heart. Why are you seeking to save is the real question. As your concern for saving and storing up money turned into hoarding rather than saving. Because there's a difference, I believe. And the litmus test is this. We're gonna, I'm going to have you, for every one of these, we're going to have some wrestling. But here's just a litmus test for this first one. And it's this. Do you fear not having enough so you hoard? Like you're always thinking about money. You know, like in 2020, you were always thinking about toilet paper. We're going to have enough. And now like you're like, don't have to worry about that anymore. Just go check that closet. Full. Never happening again, right? Like, But you think about money in the same way. Does money consume your thoughts regarding the future? Has concern for your own financial well-being taken the place of understanding who you are in Christ and the freedom you have for generosity? You see, generous hearts understand generous grace and in turn live both wisely and generously. And as cliche as it might sound, you can't take it with you, right? You can't. Today, do you trust God with both your finances and your future? Or are you desperately clinging to and building things that will one day be destroyed? You see, what God's grace does is it brings a trust that God will take care of us. And, and guess what? That trust leads to what? It leads to generosity. The judgment that comes by hoarding leads to mistrust in others and a deep trust in what you can earn, save, and make. And guess what the result of that is? James says it will burn you up and eat you. Meaning that the hoarding of riches and selfishness can and will consume you. They will. And guess what? It only produces destruction. Man, do you see, man, again, that dichotomy that we've been talking about all uh, this whole series. Man, there's, there's the kingdom of self, which is selfishness and pride. And then there's the kingdom of God, which is selflessness and humility. And so if I were to call you to wrestle with this uh, first judgment, man, how do you view your v bank and savings account and where your security is found? 
What are your goals for generosity and investing in the kingdom rather than strictly your goals for saving and investing in your own kingdom? Again, those things aren't bad. But what do you love more? I think one more thing that's needed, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say this, and then I'm going to preface why I'm saying it uh, and where my heart's at on this, okay? So you just, y'all, can y'all just, you just got to walk with me, all right? Tithing is a mark of trust in God rather than self. And so today, are you giving to God and trusting Him to provide? I think one of the ba- most basic marks of that is saying, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tithe based on what I get. So growing up, I, we did not tithe. Um, uh, at, at really at all. At, uh, not that I know of ever. Um, and, and even, man, as, as I was a young adult, I didn't know what tithing was. I didn't know what giving was. Like, I would give like $5, you know. Like if I had something, I'd feel bad. Shame is not good in giving, right? Uh, but whenever Haley and I were, got married, man, we, she learned that. And she knew, amen. So we committed from the time, like the time we got married, man, we're going to tithe and we have. And we celebrated 10 years of marriage on Friday. Praise God. I guess, you know, we're celebrating. Yeah, we can clap for that. Like, awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, it was a, you know, it, but as I think about that, like, guess what? In 10 years, God's always provided. Like every single time. And guess what? There were many moments where we were like, like things were really tight and we're like, well, it's not going to, you know, how, where's this? He provided every time. Like every time. And like, you know, and, and so like the reason like I say that is because I think, man, so often like we wrestle with that. It was like, well, I don't have to. I don't need. No, you do. Because what it is is showing where your heart is. Where's your faith at? Where's your trust? Like, again, actually, you don't own any of it. It's all his. He's just called you to steward it. And so the reason I say that, and I want you to think, I'm not saying that out of fear, okay? Guess what? God's always provided for this church because it's his. Like, I'm not scared. I think when we first started, I was, right? And so I probably would say those things in sin. But today, I'm not worried about it. Like I'm, and so, but I, I, the reason I say that is because it's concerning. And I know that for many, that's the first step towards that generous heart is saying, man, man, I'm going to trust God with this. And guess what? I don't have to control it. One more thing in that regard. We want to model that here as a church. And part of that is I need help with other people to help me steward that. Because that's a big weight and that's a scary thing for me at times to figure all those things out. So, man, if you're, if you're like, man, that's, I'm really passionate about that. Like, I, we need help because we want to grow our own generosity as a church. And so just come see me afterwards. <laughs> judgment number two is the judgment due to the cheating of workers. So the context of what James is talking about here is that the rich controlled the majority, if not all, the land. And so if they decided not to pay or they delayed in payment, they weren't affected. Those working for them were, and they would struggle mightily. There was no care and concern, but also there was this sense of money in the building of self at the expense of others. 
And so in terms of this, man, today do you view your money, your job, and your life, even particularly like as a business owner or someone, man, in that regard, to build yourself or to care for and cultivate others? Do those who work alongside you or for you see themselves as a pawn for your success or a partner in the success, care, and cultivation of what's taking place around them? And so if you were to wrestle in this area, I would encourage you to ask yourself, what are you seeking to build? And in the process, who are you building up and caring for along the way? You see, the gospel leads us to care for others if we, as we've been cared for, which means that even in our work, we're to seek the benefit of others over ourselves, which to the world sounds like absolute insanity, right? The world says, no, you get and you crush whoever's in your way. Because it's all about the mighty dollar. No, Jesus says, no, you've got everything you need. Seek the kingdom and everything will be added to you because you'll have enough. Is it costly? Yes. Will most see it not as business savvy and wise? Yeah, but guess what? It's worth it. And if you don't believe me, like he's not in the room, but I encourage you. There's probably many of you, but I'm just going to pick on the one I know. Uh, Not pick on, encourage the one I know. If you don't believe, like, if you want to know someone that has a passion for things like this and will talk your ear off about what it means, go talk to my brother-in-law, Nathan. The guy has it, like, like in talking, he's like, man, I just want to learn how I can just give more away, like, and, and build more people, like, and, and in, his, in terms of his business. Because he gets it. Like, do you get it today? Next is the judgment due to self-indulgence. So what we see here is that the rich, on the one hand, are reaping the benefits of their oppressive harvest. They have more food, more drink, and more stuff than they could ever need. And yet two things are happening. First is they desire more. You see, indulgence when self-focused is never lasting and always leads to the need for more. But the second, the imagery here is that even the good things they indulge upon are the same things that are fattening them up for slaughter. And you can't be more blunt than that, right? So I, I grew up a bit different as a child. I was raised on a ranch. And uh, while one of the different things was that while most went to the grocery store for their beef, we just slaughtered our own. Like that's what we did. And so we always had an animal. Just We were just feeding them out. And man, guess what? We kept the tub full all the time. Every two days we would go and we'd just make sure that thing was full because we wanted them to eat and eat and eat. And guess what? They loved it. And the other cattle were all jealous. Like they would just stand at the fence and be like, look at that. You see, what they didn't know is that, man, they were just fattening up for slaughter. And is that how we view finances? Is that how we view wealth? Today, as you wrestle, what are you running after? And how does your spending reveal that what you're looking to for hope, identity, and security? Are you over-consuming with no regard and care for others who have nothing? Like This is a biblical principle, uh, man, that the, you know, in the Old Testament you see it a lot. Do you have margin in your life for generosity? Or just for you? Is there margin for generosity in your budget? Like right now, like in the hustle and bustle of prepping for Christmas, is there margin in your Christmas budget for generosity? Again, 
I, I don't want you to hear these things today and think, man, I can't have any fun. I can't indulge. No, like it is a gift of grace to enjoy the fruit of God's common grace. Like he's given us tacos because they are good and should be enjoyed at every opportunity, right? Like they are. Like they're good things. But we're to use them in the right way. It is a sin to worship it and look to it for satisfaction and pleasure. Especially for the sake of others. Like forsaking others in light of that. Man, it's sin. And then lastly, it's judgment due to the condemning and murder of men. So in James's day, in that culture, uh, in Judeo-Christian society, it, it, to, to, to deprive a person who was in need was the same as murdering that person. Like that's what James is saying here. He's saying you're depriving the person in need, so you're murdering in your heart and in your, with your actions, right? And literally some of them might have been starving to death. It reverts back to James chapter 2 when he says, What good is it to tell the hungry and ill-clad, be warm and be filled, when you don't seek to make them warm and fill their stomachs? He says, This is what was taking place to those whom James is writing to, and it presents a stark warning to the unbelieving wealthy to open their eyes and see that the very oppression they place on others is leading to their damnation. But it's also a warning for us. We are to live under the authority. We are to live under the authority of a generous king who does not simply tell us to be warm and filled, but enters in, clothes us in righteousness, and gives himself as what? As the bread of life. And so in turn, we are to be a counter-cultural kingdom of priests who, in light of our wealth in Christ, are to present ourselves differently when it comes to seeing those in need. You see it in Acts chapter 2. It says that they were selling and giving to all who had need. Only transformational grace does that. Nothing else. Apart from grace, we live out the judgment of selfishness and pride, do we not? But by grace, we learn and live out what it means to be selfless and humble, trusting in God's will and walking in obedience to His Word. And so where I would ask us to wrestle is, is this us? Are we this type of people? Is our church marked by this generosity? Are our MCs marked by this type of radical generosity and even transparency? Are you willing in your missional community to say, hey, we need some help. We're struggling. We don't know what to do. Are you humble enough to share when you're in need? Is your life marked by this kind of grace producing generosity? Is there, if you're honest, by the judgment of hoarding, cheating, self-indulgement and condemnation. And may we never be guilty of condemning and murdering others by way of our selfishness. Rather, may we be a people who seek to live differently in light of the selfish, selfless work of Christ on our behalf. You see, Jesus did not and does not hoard His grace and mercy. He gives more grace. He did not and does not cheat us out of what He purchased for us. He doesn't hold it out here like a dangling carrot. Jesus did not come to indulge selfish desires, but humbled Himself to the point of death on a cross. Jesus did not and does not condemn us for he was condemned for us and now he sits in all authority. 
May we live in light of this and stop looking to money, our bank statements, keeping up with the Joneses as our standard. In the words of Dave Ramsey, the Joneses are broke. Not only that, but Satan is a liar who only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus came and he gives not only life, but abundant life. A life without lack. And because we have no lack, we're free to live generously with and towards others. Time out, Cade, come back up. I mean, I just want to invite you to wrestle today. Not wrestle in shame and condemnation. Like if that's it, like you just cast that aside and say, Satan, you're a liar. But what I mean by wrestling is coming to God and saying, okay, open hand. Where is it? What do I need to deal with? Where do I need to repent? Where am I walking in selfishness and pride? Specifically in these areas. Do I have margin in my life? I think also one of the ways that you can add, like if you have need, aside from just saying, hey, I need money to help with this, like one of the things you can go to is like go to someone and say, hey, I need you to help me learn how to do a budget. Like I want to be generous. As you think about, man, as a in your workplace and in your home and your neighbor, like how are you? Are we generous? Do you have margin? Not so people can see you, but so people can say, "Man, what? That's different, right?" Like they're willing. Like the world's saying, "No, hoard," because there might not be enough tomorrow. A scarcity culture. We don't live. We live in a kingdom, not a scarcity culture. So I want to invite you to that today, man. Along with inviting you to that, I want to invite you, man. If you're a follower of Jesus, to come and share in communion, to share in this reality of the most generous gift we ever received, that Jesus would give His life, so that we might have life. Man, and as you partake in, in the bread uh, of Jesus, uh, man, giving His body, and as you take in the cup of Him shedding His blood, that, that you would think, man, He did this. And so that I might then go out and live in, in, in a life of freedom that is generous because, man, I have all that I need. He destroyed the greatest oppressor. Like Jesus destroyed sin, death, and the grave. Our greatest, the, the, the undefeated enemy, He defeated. So our ultimate oppressor is gone. May we allow Him to work on our hearts today. Jesus, we thank You. Oh, we are just so grateful that You give more grace. God, today as we wrestle, God, today as we think about... Uh, Man, something that that you, Jesus, talked more about than anything else. Something that is uncomfortable, that that shouldn't be uncomfortable in the life of the church. Lord, that we would see that often our uncomfortable nature when talking about, man, money and things like that is often due to to sin or insecurity or uh, selfishness and pride. Uh, God, and that we would just wrestle with those things today and lay them at your feet because there's more grace. But God, we would also know that, that, that uh, man, you've given us what you've given us so that we might steward it well for your glory. Well, let us be a people who are generous. 
to others. Generous with our, our, our finances, generous with our time, generous with our belongings. Because we know that, man, that those things, God, that, they, that they'll pass away, but that, God, that you stand and you are good and you, God, that you provide. Lord, let, let us not be a people of scarcity, but let us live into the abundance of your kingdom. We ask for, for grace in doing that, for hearts of quick repentance uh, and looking to your word for obedience. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.